Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. On the morning of the 12th of April, 1961, a Russian farmer and her daughter were out working in the fields when they saw walking towards them a figure in an orange spacesuit and a white helmet. It's fair to say it was a sight no one on earth had ever seen before, and they were terrified. But the figure removed its helmet and identified himself as a Soviet citizen. The woman offered him her bottle of milk and he knocked it back, then asked her where the nearest telephone was. This was Yuri Gagarin, for a long time the most famous Russian in the world. More famous than Tolstoy, more famous than Stalin, more famous even than Lenin. I know this to be true because as a child in the 1960s, he was the only Russian I had ever heard of. Not just me, I know, but most people on the planet. After all, he was the first man in space. One day, in fourth class, our teacher told us we had to do a project. I was obsessed with space travel and immediately thought of Yuri Gagarin. In those unimaginable days before Wikipedia, simple facts and documentary material were hard to come by. There wasn't even a library nearby. So I wrote politely to the Soviet embassy on Orwell Road in Ratgar and waited. In the meantime, I equipped myself with a scrapbook, glue and scissors, ready to cut and paste. To my delight, a couple of weeks later, a large envelope plopped on the mat. It contained various official publications about Gagarin and the Soyuz space project, plus postage stamps and posters, all of them printed on thick, shiny paper with strange-smelling ink. The photos showed Gagarin in his spacesuit, surrounded by technicians, then many more of him in his Air Force uniform, smiling radiantly at adoring crowds, or shaking hands with party leaders, kings and presidents all over the world. On the face of it, he was an unlikely candidate for such worldwide fame. He was born in an obscure provincial area of Russia and left school at 16 to become an apprentice foundryman, but one who had ambitions to become a pilot. He had had a difficult childhood. Under the German occupation, his family were thrown out of their house and forced to live in a tiny hut in their own garden. Gagarin was also quite short, standing at five foot two inches. He repeatedly failed his piloting tests until, allegedly, an instructor gave him a cushion to sit on so he could see better when landing. He became a proficient pilot and was soon the lead candidate to be shot into space or, as Star Trek has it, to boldly go where no man has gone before. And so, on that April morning, he was strapped into a metal container on top of a massive fuel tank and detonated into space. He orbited the Earth in nine minutes and then fell back to Earth. This all came as quite a surprise to the Americans, who were at an advanced stage of planning their first manned spaceflight. In the space race, the USA had come in second place, behind the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. It was a shock, 
and one they resolved to avenge by being first to place a man on the moon. Your move, Ivan. But even before the end of the Cold War, the two sides had tacitly admitted they couldn't afford to keep this up. And before long, they were cosily sharing space stations. I eventually lost interest in Yuri Gagarin, but with all the recent coverage of space travel anniversaries, it has revived. I soon discovered that things were, as usual, a lot more complicated than they had appeared in my project scrapbook. The problem started with the landing. According to the rules, it was only an official space flight if the pilot landed together with his spacecraft. Gagarin, however, had ejected from the capsule and parachuted to Earth, landing miles from his craft, something the Soviets didn't admit until 1971. As he had become a world celebrity, the Soviets were reluctant to risk him in space again, to Gagarin's intense frustration. He also felt that unnecessary risks were being taken with the lives of his fellow cosmonauts, and he became a thorn in the side of the establishment. Eventually, he was allowed to fly jets again. However, on the 27th of March, 1968, he died when his jet crashed. Immediately, his death gave rise to many theories. It was claimed that he had been assassinated because of the trouble he was causing, while others said that the Soviet leadership had become jealous of his fame and influence. It was also rumoured that he may have been drinking vodka before the flight, as it was well known that he was fond of a drop. Or it may have just been a mechanical failure. Whatever the truth, Yuri Gagarin is someone whose name will be remembered as long as the human race exists on this planet. After all, he was the first member of the species to leave the planet and then return. There are 16 geese in James Joyce's Ulysses. These are not accidental geese. Joyce fell in love with a goose when he found his Nora Barnacle, freshly flown east from Galway. You might call Nora the central goose in Ulysses, in the form of plump, warm Molly Bloom, the wife that Leopold Bloom cannot stop thinking about, and who eventually delivers her soliloquy from the nest of her bed. In the same way Bloom's Molly runs like a refrain through his thoughts in Ulysses, in real life Joyce was preoccupied with Nora. She filled him up and followed his flight wherever he went. In their 37-year relationship, Joyce and Nora were rarely parted. Separated from her, Joyce could barely function. When he was in Ireland and Nora was in Trieste, they exchanged urgent erotic letters to keep themselves and their love tight. When Nora was in Ireland and Joyce in Paris, he fainted in the bookshop Shakespeare and Company from the lonely distress of being without her. 
Joyce predeceased Nora by 10 years and she lived out those years in Zurich until her own death on the 10th of April 1951, 70 years ago this weekend. Geese fly in and out of Ulysses in the form of exiled wild geese and in the minds of both Stephen Dedalus and Bloom. Stephen, walking on Sandymount Strand, thinking of the missing body of a drowned man, muses that God becomes man, becomes fish, becomes barnacle goose, becomes featherbed mountain. In Joyce's masterpiece, God doesn't become just any goose, but a barnacle goose, the best bird of all in Joyce's parade of geese, the goose he loved, trusted and mated with for life. Joyce, when he had Stephen make his leap from God to Barnacle Goose, may have had in mind an old clerical debate about whether Barnacle Geese might really be considered fish, not flesh, and therefore suitable to eat on Fridays. This debate stemmed from medieval naturalists observing goose barnacles, a different species entirely, and coming to some fanciful conclusions. Gerald of Wales, writing in the 12th century Topographia Hiberniae, assumed marine barnacles were the eggs of barnacle geese. He wrote, The geese are produced from fir timber tossed along the sea and are at first like gum. Afterwards, they hang down by their beaks as if they were a seaweed attached to the timber and are surrounded by shells in order to grow more freely. Barnacles do not breed and lay eggs like other birds. For sure, marine barnacles cling to surfaces and grow shells. But the clergy seized on the barnacle goose with its seemingly fantastical practices as a prayer answered. If the geese grew on trees and rocks, they could only be fish, not fowl. This is just the sort of whimsical thinking that writers thrive on. And no doubt, James Joyce enjoyed this barnacle-related fancy and loved Nora's unusual surname all the more because of it. In The Dead, Joyce's short story set on the 6th of January, Women's Christmas, Gabriel came to his aunt's generously laden party table, ready to carve a flock of geese if necessary. At one end of the table lay a fat brown goose, among little minsters of jelly red and yellow, a shallow dish full of blocks of blancmange and red jam, a large green leaf-shaped dish with a stalk-shaped handle, on which lay bunches of purple raisins and peeled almonds, a companion dish on which lay a solid rectangle of Smyrna figs. This is surely one of the most beautiful fictional descriptions of food, and it was written when Joyce and Nora were on their uppers in Rome in 1907, gasping, no doubt, for a taste of goose or jam or figs. Their Christmas dinner that year consisted of dishes of plain pasta. James Joyce's father quipped about Nora Barnacle that she would stick to Joyce. And so she did. She was a pragmatic, optimistic woman. And despite all hardships, she remained goose and featherbed to Joyce. She honked at him and harassed him for sure to keep him straight. But Nora was also always James Joyce's soft place to land. Dear, dead, dead.
Knockover Simon Urpino had a plastic bag of subway dangling down by his bare leg, letting the warmth of it dab at his skin as it swung towards and away from him. The train was getting going in the early morning sun. We were somewhere between Germany, Austria, Switzerland, Hungary, Croatia. We were sweaty and underwashed, tired, muggy, luxuriating in our own filth. Our clothes were damp and rotting with sweat, bundled up in our rucksacks. There was too little water between the six of us. Someone was wearing the same t-shirt for the third day in a row. There had been an argument about where to go next, about what city was the right one to go to. The train shook and shook as I thought, I hate every person in this booth. I told them I was going to sit somewhere else on the train and read. Ignoring the bits of half glances to each other, I left, going down the other end of the train to find an empty booth. I've been utilising this tactic more and more as we've gone into the later weeks of our trip. Generally, I appreciate a certain amount of time to myself and like to avoid people if I'm in bad form. This was not part of the group ethos, which was that we should always, as much as possible, stick together. People would get snippy with each other, exasperated, and yet remain in the same room, arguing through their moods. I preferred to bail and come back when tempers had calmed. When I stepped off the train at our destination, the other lads were already walking away hurriedly down the platform. When I caught up to them, they maintained a sharp silence. Were they that offended that I'd left, preferring to spend the two-hour train journey by myself? I followed, confused for a bit, then sensed that something else had happened in my absence. Later on, I learned exactly what had happened. After I'd left our compartment, a beautiful young Australian woman had slid open the rattling carriage door, blonde and fresh and cool. They looked up at her. Sorry, guys, she'd said, in unmistakable Australian wide-mouthed vowels. Do you mind if I take that seat? Pointing at the seat I'd just vacated. The answer was, of course, no. They could barely, barely believe their luck. She stowed a rucksack beside their bags and the rack above them and swung into the empty seat beside the window. They pretended not to look at her. She was well used to the situation and instead of waiting to see which one of them would talk at her first, find her name, find where her hostel was, make contact, establish rapport, get contact info, she just breezed into it. So where are you guys from? she asked. How long have you been on the road? Where are you going next? They answered some way or how, in an incredibly friendly and inclusive manner. But she was a mirage. She wasn't real. A gorgeous woman didn't just slide into your life, occupying the seat some long-forgotten ginger had left, and start making small talk. Usually there were more hurdles to get over. Icy friends, protective males, her own standards. This didn't quite just happen. Not like this. There was a lull in the conversation as each young man struggled to plot their strategy ahead. Noting the brief silence, the Australian girl turned her head and looked out the window. Then she stood up. Sorry guys, she said. I can't do this. She took her rucksack down from the rack. It's not personal, she said. It's just, guys, it stinks in here. She left sliding the door firmly shut after her. They watched her go, away off down the carriage to find another compartment that didn't reek of reused socks, wet towel, warm subway sandwich, too much links, not enough soap, sweaty t-shirts, cigarettes, old burps, new farts, beer breath, hair grease, garlic cheesy chips, pull my finger, mayonnaise, kebabs, kebabs, kebabs. 
When I rejoined them on the train platform, a long, hard silence was on the group. They checked into the hostel, brought the bags to their bunks, and then the sound of water gushing in the shower rooms. It would be a long while before they told me about their humiliation, even longer still before they recovered. There's that image you have of yourself when young and on the move, well-travelled, soiled but in a charming way. Martin Sheen in Badlands, old t-shirt, young body, grubby but romantic. Then there's the reality. A carriage full of smelly, smelly young men, scaring off a gorgeous young backpacker. And that, more or less, is why I travel alone. In the last months, I have become a rabbit seeker, trying to entice a wild rabbit to come out of hiding. But I'm not like Jimmy Stewart in the movie, seeing the magical Harvey. Our rabbit does exist, only we don't see him very often. In the past few years, we have had black, wild rabbits that appeared around our house in Remelton every spring. We've no idea how they arrived here, if some had originally been pets or if they'd always been wild. But there's something quite mystical about their presence. Every summer we watch them, maybe two adult rabbits and two or three little ones as they romped around the garden. They used our lawn like their playground, leaping and chasing each other in looping circles. Visitors to our home would always say, Oh, look, you have rabbits. Small children would try to follow them. One day last year, we had three children here on summer holidays at Granddad's house. They were upstairs playing when I heard a commotion and banging on a window. I went running upstairs and the three kids were in a panic. They had looked out the window and seen one rabbit sitting, munching on a plant, and close by, coming creeping up through the grass, was a fox. They banged the window madly, and each animal ran off in a different direction. From that moment, all three children were on a mission. They had saved the rabbit's life, but there was more for them to do. So they shaped homemade designs of cardboard and plastic knives into sword-like weapons, and then they headed out with me in tow, searching for the fox, scrutinizing every mark on the grass in case it was a paw print. Not surprisingly, they didn't find the fox, but they do carry the memory now of the day they saved a wild rabbit's life. That rabbit was safe, all that group of rabbits were, and gradually, as autumn came, they went off into hibernation. This spring, when the first rabbit came back, it felt like a moment to celebrate, 
a sign of normality. But only one rabbit appeared, one solitary black rabbit. This one, I'll call him Harvey, because he is so seldom around. He feels imaginary. I have never seen him just wandering around our garden. His way of being is different to the rabbits of other years, and for that reason, I feel I need to capture him in photographs. His appearances are fleeting, and he has made me a watcher, has drawn me deep into feeling the grace of a single moment. One day, as I was standing in the kitchen, I looked out, and Harvey the rabbit was running in the sunlight with the shadows of the trees reaching towards him. I hurried to get my camera, but when I got back, he was gone. And so now I have my camera sitting right beside our back door, ready to go in rushed moments. Or sometimes I go out, walking as quietly as I can, searching, hoping to catch him unawares. In a way, I had taken the joy of seeing the rabbits of past summers for granted. It feels like when Harvey disappears, that will be the end of the line, whatever mythical line they came from. There has been a lesson for me in watching, camera in hand, a filling of this strange vacuum. I've come to realize how keen nature's senses are, how primed animals are to protect their safety, how a pheasant strutting along, duke of his territory, can suddenly disappear into the hedge growth. How a heron resting on a lake can take flight with the slightest sound of me approaching. How ducks floating on the River Lennon can rise up and warn the others with the sharpest of calls. If only we had the ability to hone our awareness in the way they have done. On all my wanderings, one single track is flattened through the grass. The fox still prowls. Then one day, Harvey the rabbit came out from a small hole under the tree roots and rocks, heading on a mission. When he realised that I was standing there, he took off, lightning quick. So quickly, I took random, fast photos without even being sure what I was shooting. When I uploaded the photographs, there were three shots one of him in full leap, the next a blur, and the third held nothing. I looked closer at the only clear one of him. He was mid-leap, with his sleek black rabbit's fur, and in his mouth Harvey was carrying a bundle, like grass and sticks, bringing the dinner home. This rabbit was gathering in sustenance, in the way, with his every fleeting appearance, he has given me the gift of sustenance for my spirit. On the farm Every Friday On the farm His rabbit pie day So every Friday that ever comes along, I get up early and sing this little song. Dawn Chorus 
It was the first bird that called me, her one note like a waking bell. Mist was down, leaching the garden white. I made my way by memory and sound, for they were all calling me then, singing a path to the trees, where I lay on my back beneath their canopy of song. An orchestra of throats, woodwind of pigeon, and the small birds in their high chorus. I lay on the ground until they had finished, and I was quite cold. Then I got up and stepped back into my tongue. I was six years of age when the McQueen Spare was broadcast by Television for the first time in 1963. I'm not sure if I ever had any interest in wildlife before that. Living on the edge of Inglis West, we were close to green fields and farmlands, but my childhood memories would be of chasing cows and running from the farmer whose life had changed so drastically with the arrival of a massive corporation housing estate. We would traipse through his fields daily during the hot summers of my childhood. We went in a straight line from our homes to the cool waters of the Tolka River. Neither thick hedgerows nor barbed wire fences could divert our onward march. We caught pinkings on the Cardiff's Bridge, paddled in the shallows called the Silver Spoon and swam with the big boys on bends in the river we christened Scouts and Elbow. And with Queen Spare would change my view of those fields and that splendid River Tolka. They became hunting grounds for kingfishers and dippers, foxes, badgers, rabbits and stoats, and beautiful birds with nests of tiny, multicoloured eggs. And with Queen Spare kept me out under the sky. My favourite part of the programme was when Gerrit van Geldren, with great ease and apparent great speed, sketched the subjects of the day. The images appeared on the screen, drawn line by line, transforming a blank sheet of paper into a work of art. The Dutch naturalist and filmmaker, who made Ireland his home, would illustrate the essential markings of each bird, which would help the novice identify it accurately. With a decade of years behind me, I teamed up with other young budding bird watchers on the street. And before long, our days were filled with adventures on the banks of the Tolka and on escapades to Ashtown and further towards Blanchardstown. On our streets, we knew sparrows, maggers, jackers and waggers. But in the fields, we found warblers and kestrels and long-tailed tits. As the seasons changed, we watched for migrating birds. With our newly gained knowledge, we started to notice flocks of wintering fieldfares, members of the thrush family. 
They are easily distinguished by their grey rump. One spring, while my friends were looking for nests, they noticed a thrush with a grey rump fly into a bush. On close inspection, they saw a nest. This was remarkable news, if it was a field fair, as they should have returned to Scandinavia to breed. There was great excitement within our small group and it was decided to contact the Mugfreen Spare and see what they thought. I don't think we really expected a response, but a couple of days later a Land Rover with a rubber dinghy on its roof pulled up on our street and outstepped Gerrit van Geldren. I watched him get out of the Land Rover with the same awe as I had watched Neil Armstrong step out of Apollo 11 onto the moon. Gerrit van Geldren wanted Leo and Stevie and Kevin and me to bring him to the nest. We barreled into the Land Rover and slowly drove down our street, heading for the river road. The nest was in the private grounds of Ashtown Lodge, the Den Walton estate, which we regularly trespassed on. Our new hero was forced over the fence. We observed the mother thrush coming and going and then Gerrit van Geldren headed for the nest and took out a fledgling. He held the bird on the ground belly down and spread its wings. Then he quickly took a series of photographs before returning the bird to the nest and taking us all away. This was better than we ever could have imagined and it wasn't over yet. We drove down to a nearby bridge over the Tolka and watched for dippers and kingfishers. There were bird droppings on the wall. With his thumb and forefinger, he gently rolled the droppings apart. I tried to close my gaping mouth and then he revealed to us the seeds from the fruit the bird had fed on. He was about to explain something to us when a shotgun sounded nearby. Blaggard, he said. This was getting better every minute. Blackguard, I repeated, but maybe not loud enough for anyone to actually hear. A cold tit appeared. I admitted I'd never seen one before. Gerrit van Geldren reached into his pocket and took out a matchbox. He tore the box and on the back he started to draw. It was slower than on the telly, but nonetheless enthralling. He drew the top half of a small bird with a white stripe on its head. You'll always know it again, he said, from that stripe. And then he handed me the drawing. I don't really remember a whole lot after that. He must have driven us home. We must have thanked him and maybe even shook hands as we waved goodbye. But it's all a blur. It wasn't a field fair's nest, I'm sure of it now. But Gareth and Geldron never gave us that bad news. He gave us hope and courage and knowledge and a matchbox sketch that I treasured for years and years and somehow can't find now. But every time I see one of those little birds with the white stripe on the back of his head, I think of that wonderful day when Gareth van Geldron stepped onto our planet. On this morning's Sunday Miscellany programme, we heard Yuri Gagarin by Michael O'Loughlin, The True Ulysses Goose by Nuala O'Connor, Why I Travel Alone by Rory Gleeson, Searching for Rabbits by Denise Blake, 
Dawn Chorus, a poem by Grace Wells, and The Day Gerrit van Gelderen Stepped onto Planet Fingers by Brian Farrell. The music was Telstar by The Tornadoes, Love's Old Sweet Song, sung by Dara Halpin with Porig O'Kanigan on piano, Downtown Train by Tom Waits, Min Rastas Rata by Sibelius, sung by the Estonian Philharmonic Chamber Choir, conducted by Heike Seppinen, and Run Rabbit Run by Flanagan and Allen. Sunday, Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey and the producer is Sarah Binchy. For more from this and other arts culture programmes, see rte.ie slash culture. RTE Radio 1 You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.